I like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Chantel Dastra. More than 50 years ago, a tenacious investigative reporter by the name of Geraldo Rivera shed light on an atrocity that was happening for decades in New York State. That was the Willowbrook State School on Staten Island. It opened in 1947 and was seen as the only option for parents struggling to care for children with developmental disabilities. They were told their children would have access to care and education, but their reality was just the opposite. Many of the children were left alone in dark, dirty rooms without enough food to eat. There were reports of children covered in urine and feces, and hepatitis was common. In 1972, Rivera produced a shocking expose about the conditions. How is it living on the ward that you live? This place. The attendants are trying their best, but the staff is just too small to do anything more than just try and keep the place clean. No rehabilitation, no training, nothing. And after a class action lawsuit, Willowbrook closed in 1987. To mark more than 50 years since Rivera's expose, a documentary was released. It was produced by the state's Council on Developmental Disabilities and the Office of General Services. We sent a crew to capture the premiere in the capital region. The idea for a documentary came to us about a year ago, when we began producing a series of videos commemorating the 50th anniversary of Geraldo Rivera's expose. Our first interview in this series was with Geraldo and Bernard Carabello, and what they had to say was so compelling, we thought, there is more of this story that we need to tell. At the premiere of the documentary, survivors, supporters, and longtime advocates shared their respective stories on the Willowbrook State School while stressing the importance of continuing to remember the tragedy that was Willowbrook. Thank you for pushing for change, for sounding the alarm, for your tremendous advocacy. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I know they feel the same. Deborah Weiss had a brother named Robert, who was also known as Robbie to his loved ones. Robert was placed at Willowbrook at just six years old in 1958. Deborah spoke about the anger she felt about the conditions of Willowbrook. It was about four years after he died, I was in high school when the expose came out, which was um, extremely overwhelming and horrifying to me. I secretly watched the news. I secretly peeked at the newspaper. We never, ever discussed it at home. And I was confused and angry and just couldn't comprehend why in the world my parents would have sent their son to this horrible place and have pretty much deserted him. And I, I spent years being angry. It's just important for me that my brother not be forgotten. And he, um, he meant something. He meant something to me. I know now that he mattered deeply. Like Deborah, Jose Rivera also had a brother at the Willowbrook State School. Jose has continued to shed light on the pain, trauma, and regret his family has endured after putting his brother, Louis, in the state school with egregious conditions that they had no idea about. Uh, as per the professionals at the time, uh, Willowbrook was the only option. Um, 
Unfortunately, what that did is caused a significant trauma, emotional damage to my parents, and I think to the family. And I think my parents struggled with what they suddenly realized had happened when they took the lead of the professionals and recognized that Lewis was not getting what they were led to believe Lewis was going to get, and Lewis regressed. Um, so this documentary is 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 um, uh, intent, hopefully, is to remind people of what can occur when we disregard human life, human beings, and and what a human being is able to achieve when given the necessary supports, um, assistance, and an opportunity to thrive. People like my brother were isolated and hidden away from society when they were institutionalized, and there are families today who still bear that, that struggle, that suffering, for having placed their child in a, in a state institution um, and, and, and under, uh, misled by what they were thought they were going to get for their child. So I hope that message comes out loud and clear from this documentary, um, and it's remembered uh, for future generations to come. While the groundbreaking Willowbrook expose was over 50 years ago, advocates say more still needs to be done to further advance the way in which people with developmental disabilities are cared for and looked after. One of those advocates is Willie Mae Goodman. After her daughter Margaret faced Willowbrook, Willie Mae became a fearless disability rights advocate and co-chair of the Willowbrook Committee. She underscored concerns many advocates had about Willowbrook and about how people with disabilities are cared for today. The system is dealing more with paper than it is with people. I know they got a saying, putting people first. They are not putting people first. They putting paper first. And I have a problem with that. I'm hoping that with this, that people get to understand people like who has a disability who can't speak. I'm hoping they will understand they have a right to live in a decent environment. They have a right to live in a community and they have a right to participate in anything everybody else participate in. The documentary title, The Path Forward, Remembering Willowbrook, will air right after this program on WMHT at 8 p.m. And to learn more, we sat down with Vicki Haifa, the acting executive director of the State Council on Developmental Disabilities, to talk about the documentary and the ongoing work to serve New Yorkers with developmental disabilities. Thank you so much for being here today, Vicki. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, you know, the governor recently signed legislation changing the name of the Developmental Disabilities Council, Planning Council to the State Council on Developmental Disabilities, mm -hmm. as you know. And she signed legislation sort of correcting the language used to describe people with developmental disabilities in housing, medical, and um, public authorities law. So can you describe the impact of the governor signing this legislation and the importance? Sure, so for our agency, uh, changing the name while it seems minor, it really uh, was important. Um, our uh, agency, our state council, is part of a national network of councils per federal law. There's a state council in every state and territory across the country. Our state in New York State was the only one that still had the outdated name of Developmental Disabilities Planning Council. 
So this really, by changing our name, aligned us with all other state councils across the country. And the, the importance of the legislation to, to our agency is uh, it uh, got rid of some outdated language, we replaced it with more person-first language. Um, but more importantly, it put in statute that our council must reflect the diversity of New York State and, and also added some language around um, membership and making sure that we get more fresher voices on our council so we have a more um, uh, set uh, rotation policy for the members in our council. So it'll be great to get uh, more uh, voices across the state um, really having an input on, on the policies and programs that um, we implement it at our agency. Yes, absolutely. And of course, the council was, you know, influential with the Office of General Services to putting together the documentary sort of commemorating the 50th anniversary of Willowbrook and Geraldo Rivera's um, expose, you know, really revealing the egregious conditions at the state school. Right. So why was it important for the council to put together that documentary? What was the thought process? So, you know, the, the basic mission of our council and all the councils across the country is to improve the lives of people with disabilities so that they can live as independently as possible in the community they're choosing. And one of the ways that we fulfill our mission is to inform policymakers, stakeholders, and the general public about the benefits of community inclusion for people with disabilities. Um, so last year, as you said, marked the 50th anniversary of Geraldo Rivera's uh, groundbreaking expose. So we thought, um, what a perfect opportunity to inform the public about Willowbrook because many people, particularly younger generations, have never heard of Willowbrook and that needs to change. So we wanted to raise awareness about what happened at Willowbrook and we also wanted people to be aware of how far we've come in the disability system over the last 50 years. So we wanted to celebrate that, but also make clear that there's still we still have a ways to go before we uh, really get full inclusion uh, in the community for people with disabilities. Right, absolutely. And I did watch the documentary myself. I must say I did absolutely enjoy it. Um, so what was the preparation like in putting together the documentary? I know that, you know, Willowbrook in itself is a unfortunate tragedy that has so many different layers and stories that really, you know, impacted its closure. So what was that like putting together the documentary? Well, it was a, an interesting process. Mm -hmm. We're a small state agency. We don't uh, have a huge staff. Certainly no one in our agency had an experience making a documentary. So it mm -hmm. was very uh, new to us. Fortunately, I have a, a few staff that were really dedicated uh, to this project and really worked hard. And we were also fortunate that um, our, our partners at Media Services, we had uh, a person, Joel Walsh, who really uh, was as passionate about the project as we were. So that really, really helped uh, in, in developing the story. But, you know, there were also uh, things that we had to think about in, in trying to develop it was, this happened over 50 years ago. Who are we going to interview? Who could we mm -hmm. get now 50 years later? And I have to say, probably the the biggest uh, step for us was getting Geraldo Rivera, mm -hmm. Rivera to, to be uh, interviewed. And I have Bernard Carabella to thank for that. He, uh, I had contacted Bernard, and he, uh, as you know, was a resident of Wilbrook. He lived there for 18 years and then was interviewed by Geraldo in his expose. Um, and they are still friends to this day. And then we were fortunate to be able to interview other key people uh, in the Willowbrook story. There was a, an event happening at the College of Staten Island, which, as you know, was the, where, where Willowbrook was formerly housed. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a process, and there were a few kind of barriers along the way, but, um, you know, we were really happy. And I think, you know, the last thing I want to say, too, 
in terms of uh, things that we had to uh, kind of address. I mean, keeping, I think one of the biggest challenges we had is to keep the story, the documentary, under 30 minutes, because there are so <laughs> right. many layers to this story, as you indicated, um, that we would love to have delved into, or stories, there were so many great stories and powerful stories that we weren't able to include. I mean, one of the aspects that we didn't address was the fact that uh, residents there were purposely infected with hepatitis mm -hmm. yeah. to test um, the vaccine. I don't think many people are aware of that, and we really wanted to include that, but just didn't have the time. Absolutely, and as you mentioned, there's been so many ways in which um, people with developmental disabilities are, you know, being treated for in a better way since Willowbrook, right? So mm -hmm. I'm curious from your purview, what ways can we continue to make advancements in the way that people with developmental disabilities are treated either on the state level, but also on the federal level? Yes, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, we've come a long way in the 50 yeah. years, you know, <laughs> as you see in the documentary, but there's still a ways to go. People with disabilities still have a much higher unemployment rate than people without disabilities. They still face, you know, various barriers to finding housing, affordable housing in the community, accessing transportation. So there are, you know, many things that can be done at the state and federal level that still need to be done. I mean, we do have, you know, civil rights and in law that uh, people with disabilities must be not discriminated against. But, you know, what's in law and what's in practice are two different things. So we have right. to really still work, and that's, as I said, something that the council does every day um, to really, you know, further and protect the rights of people with disabilities and, and make sure that we are, you know, trying to break down those barriers and really drive systems change so that people can live fully included lives in the community. Right, absolutely. And, you know, there's been so much great work that's been done since Willowbrook, but how can we prevent, you know, even smaller Willowbrooks from happening or, um, instances where there are just as egregious conditions happening? How can we prevent that in the years to come? You know, I think one of the things that uh, we need to um, look out for are, you know, protect the funding that's available mm -hmm. for disability services. I mean, when Willowbrook um, was first opened in the 40s, it didn't start out as this awful institution. They really, uh, it was really touted as a state-of-the-art um, uh, facility for people with disabilities that you would want to send your son and daughter for the best care. It just over time, you know, became this awful place that, you know, um, was, you know, at one point the largest institution in the world for people with disabilities. And it was really because of, you know, just various cuts to funding over the years um, that, you know, resulted in staffing ratios that were like 50, 60 uh, people to one staff person, which is not manageable. So I think one of the ways is to really advocate and protect funding uh, for disability services to make sure that, you know, we have adequate staff. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're, you know, facing now is a, a crisis among direct support professional staffing. Uh, it was uh, a bad before the pandemic, but it's so much worse now. And I think that's something that really needs to be addressed is to make sure that we have, you know, uh, uh, sufficient um, staffing uh, for people with disabilities. So we really need to address the pay and really you know, provide a career ladder for, for direct support professionals. So it's a career that they want to enter into. And we don't have so many vacancies that we do now in, in the field. Yeah, and you shed light on a very um, important aspect, which is the aftermath of the pandemic, right? 
So in what ways, how can we support those individuals? Like, how, what can the governor do? What can the legislature do to ensure that people are not, you know, being understaffed or, you know, facilities are not being understaffed? Sure. So, you know, I think, again, you know, looking at, you know, providing adequate funding, looking at, um, you know, providing more innovative housing solutions. Not everyone uh, with disabilities wants to live in a group home. Group homes are great. They're much better than living in an institution. But some people want to live, you know, uh, in, in just an apartment or a house. So providing more opportunities for that. So making sure that there's there's adequate funding. And I would also say that, again, looking at the direct support professional crisis and really providing sufficient funding and and, and really addressing that in a, in a long-term systematic way, that's something that, you know, the governor and the legislature can do. And it's not just in the disability field. It's really in all human service uh, agencies, so uh, that, that, that this is a crisis with, with direct care staff. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, looking at uh, some longer-term solutions and, and not just putting a Band-Aid on it um, will really, I think, go a long way to, to making sure another Willowbrook doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Well, you put it perfectly. You know, there's been a lot of strides that's been made since Willowbrook, but there's still so much work to be done. So thank you so much for being with us today, Vicki. Um, and that was Vicki Haifa, Executive Director of the State Council on Developmental Disabilities. Thank you very much for having me. And as Vicki said, for people with disabilities, independence is key. A big part of independence for a lot of people comes from having a job. That's where Knighthood comes in. They're a statewide network that connects people with disabilities with jobs, and they're looking for more support from the state. For more on that, I sat down with Maureen O'Brien, president of Knighthood. Thank you so much for being here today, Maureen. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So NYSID, of course, was put in place after the closure of Willowbrook. Um, and, you know, following the closure of Willowbrook and the expose on the egregious conditions, I'm curious what the tragic legacy of Willowbrook has had on your organization, NYSID. So I, I do think there's a positive legacy out of Willowbrook with our organization. It's different than many of the other legacies that exist. We came into existence post Willowbrook uh, because Governor Hugh Carey at the time felt it was important to come up with ways in which individuals with disabilities could be integrated into communities and the workforce. And that's where NYSID came from. Um, I do think uh, we have to look at Willowbrook regularly. We have to review it every year. We can't forget what happened there, and we have to continue to learn from it as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And as you touched on before, you know, it's an ongoing fight, um, and there is still a lot of work to be done. So what role do you see your organization having in the years to come as you continue to fight for rights for people with disabilities? Sure. We're going to continue to talk about employment for individuals with disabilities. Right now in New York State, the unemployment rate, if you are disabled, is 67 percent. Clearly, we aren't doing everything that we need to do to ensure that individuals with disabilities have access to jobs and have the appropriate settings in place so that they can be successful in the job. We do that a lot with social enterprises that we work with through NYSID and private corporations that have put the onus on making sure an individual with disability can succeed in the workplace. Mm -hmm. What I say all the time is individuals with disabilities are really, really great 
problem solvers. By the time they get to work, uh, perhaps after taking public transportation, perhaps after uh, getting dressed and back in a wheelchair, um, perhaps working through any number of issues, the easy part is once they're on the job. Yeah, absolutely. And are there any specific industries that you're hoping would, you know, employ sure. more people with disabilities? And how can you help to encourage those employers to hire people with disabilities? Yeah, so the program that we run, the Preferred Source Program for Individuals with Disabilities that NYSID manages, there are a number of different occupation areas and industries that we're allowed to work in where we can automatically contract with the state without having to go through the bid process. So we have a great number of customers at the government level uh, who procure from us everything from janitorial services to digital accessibility to data imaging, all of those things. I think with uh, AI and other things that are happening there, there's going to be in the technology space a whole bunch of other places where individuals with disabilities can be successful. And I look forward to working with the state on that. Are there any sort of misconceptions about hiring people with oh, yeah. developmental disabilities that you've had to sort of, you know, work through um, in your role and how have you kind of combated that? Sure, one of the things I always say when it comes to hiring, particularly someone who's neurodiverse, what you and I would talk about as important in an interview process, sometimes someone who's neurodiverse can't do it. They can't sit across quietly from you and make eye contact. Perhaps shaking your hand would be something that they wouldn't uh, embrace or welcome. And so if someone has the skills to do the job, that's what you have to interview for. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to interview for eye contact, handshake, uh, how the interview starts and ends. You really want to look at someone's skills and say, can they do the job? Will they be successful in the job? And can we give them the supports and structure where they will be? Uh, some of the best employees I have in my organization are people who have had a barrier to employment because they come to work every day really excited about coming to work. They come to work really wanting to be on the job because they know what it's like not to have one. Yeah, and you know, of course your office is doing, or your organization is doing a lot of great work and the work is ongoing, right? So I'm yep. curious about your long-term goals in this fight for allowing yeah. people with developmental disabilities to really be in the workforce. So there's two things we have coming uh, forward at NYSID. One is the legislation that allows us to operate will sunset next year. So oh, wow. we'll have a uh, boots on the ground effort to ensure that that legislation is renewed. Um, and that we can continue to operate the program that we're operating. Uh, in addition to that, um, we want everybody and anybody who wants to understand what we do to talk to us. We don't just have to sell our goods and services to government. Any private sector entity that is interested in diversifying their supply chain to assist individuals with disabilities can do business with us. Um, this past year, uh, we've done a number of things with Albany Medical Center and with uh, their expanded uh, footprint and it's been great work for the individuals that we have. Yeah, and what has, you know, that preparation for next year's fight really entailed? Like, are there any specific advocates or lawmakers that you've been working close with, close with as you gear up for, you know, yeah. next year? 
Uh, so right now in the uh, Senate and the Assembly, there is a Disabilities Committee. Right. So again, that did not exist a number of years ago. The Disabilities Committee rolled up under the Mental Health Committee. Having our own committee structure in the Senate and the Assembly allows us greater access to elected officials to help them understand what it is that we do and why it's important. Um, I feel like with the Chief Disability Officer, we also have a great venue to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, what we need to do is get the word out. We need to get to work. We need to hit the ground running as soon as the legislative session starts. It sounds like your office has been doing really important work and I really hope that you know you get the extension that you so deserve. It sounds like you're already prepared for next year's fight. So please keep us posted on how the extension goes and hopefully we can have you back here on the show very soon. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. And that was Maureen O'Brien, President and CEO of the New York State Industries for the Disabled. And we'll link to NICE's website on our website. Again, that's nynow.org. As we close out this week, we return to Willowbrook. Today, it's known by another name. The College of Staten Island sits on part of the site that was once Willowbrook and is home to the Willowbrook Mile, a memorial to remind people of what happened there and how far we've come. If you're watching on WMHT, the Willowbrook documentary is up next, so stay right here. We'll also link to it online. That does it for this special episode of New York Now. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET and by the New York State Education Department.